I want to focus on the first reading again this week about David. Last week we saw how David had a long way to go before he became a man after God's own heart. And the section today kind of takes place from where we started last week, where David was installed as king, and we jumped ahead to some of the incidents from later in his life where he had learned to be humble before the Lord, to accept the Lord's direction in all things. This is in between. He's still learning. So things were going great for David. He had brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He had built a house of cedar for himself on Mount Zion, which is the highest point in Jerusalem. And he's on a roll and he says, I think I'll build God a house too. And Nathan, without consulting with the Lord, says, sure, you're doing great. And then the Lord said, I love this dialogue with the Lord sometimes. He kind of puts David in his place. He said, have I complained? I was with you all the way through your journeys in the wilderness. And it's worth noting, he was with the people through all their trials. He's also with us through all of our journeys and trials. And then he reminds David that it all came from God in the first place. God is the one who's directing the show, not David. God selected David, brought him up from following the sheep, led him through his battle with Goliath, anointed him to be king, and after many trials and tribulations, David became king. But God is thinking bigger than just a house. He doesn't say, now I'm going to build you a house. He says, I'm going to build you a dynasty, a kingdom which will never end. This kingdom, it says, will never leave David's family, unlike Saul's family, who Saul lost his faithful, became unfaithful to God. God abandoned him in favor of David. And he even makes provision for sin and repentance. And we saw this big time when the people of Israel were led into captivity, but then were brought back and their kingdom was reestablished. And after promising all of these things to David, David responds in the following chapter to this reading with a great prayer of thanksgiving to God, a humble and heartfelt and praise-filled prayer. Now, did the kingdom disappear? Well, it's not there now. Herod became king in the time of Jesus, but he wasn't considered to be in the line of David. He was a usurper. Will the Judaic kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, be restored? Well, God said something very important along with the promise about the kingdom. He said, my steadfast love will never depart. Your throne shall be established forever. And at this point, the prophecy is starting to move toward the Messiah, the promised Messiah, not just a continuation of the kingship. So as in many passages of Scripture that sort of blends from talking about the present situation to talking about the coming day of the Lord. And sometimes it's hard to actually see the line where the one stops and the other starts. 
But it becomes very clear that the God is talking about something more than an earthly kingdom. And later the prophets of Israel began to understand these covenants in a similar fashion and began to give them a messianic interpretation. David himself was considered a prophet and many of his psalms contain prophecy, especially prophecy about the coming Messiah. Both Jesus and Peter quoted from David's psalms to establish the messianic and king, uh, nature of Jesus and that Jesus was the coming Lord who was prophesied. In Psalm, I'd like to give you a couple of those. In Psalm 16, David said, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let my body undergo corruption. And on Peter's preaching on Pentecost Sunday, he made it very clear, David is dead. His tomb's right over there. It's on Mount Sion. It's still there. And so he's obviously not talking about himself when he said, "My holy one, your holy one will not undergo corruption. He was talking about Messiah Jesus, who they claimed had been raised from the dead. And he also quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I put your enemies under your feet. Now, Jesus cited that verse also when he was arguing with the Pharisees. They had asked him questions. He had given excellent answers and evaded their traps. So then he posed that question for them. If David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, who is this my Lord? If David called him Lord, whose son is he? And Jesus, of course, was referring to himself as being the Son of God. Peter also cited that one. Paul cited it in 1 Corinthians. Hebrews did. The lordship of Jesus is seen as the fulfillment of the messianic promises to David that his kingdom, his dynasty, would never end. And we saw it in today's second reading from Paul where he talks about we, the believers, are the temple. We are living stones. I think that was Peter said that one, living stones. But Paul says we're all built together into the house of God. And so the physical kingdom and the talk about physical temples has been changed to a spiritual kingdom and a living spiritual temple. And in the gospel reading today, we see the beginnings of that kingdom. You might have noticed there's a big gap in that gospel passage. And it's a little hard to follow as you went from the first paragraph to the second paragraph. Or what's missing in between there is the story of the multiplication of the loaves and the walking on the water. And that's always set aside as a separate gospel so you can focus on that. The point of the two paragraphs here, the first one was Jesus went about to show the excitement and the working of Jesus among the people. He went about teaching. People flocked out to see him. And then he came back across the lake to Genezareth and people flocked to him to be healed. So his teaching and his healing was the beginning of this establishing of the kingdom of God, which God promised to David he would do. 
Now, this kingdom has enemies. And I want to talk a little about the enemies of the kingdom. We know about the physical threats to the church. The church has always, from time to time, at least been severely persecuted. And many Christians, as we know today, are being threatened with persecution and death. But there is a spiritual enemy as well, which is probably more important for us to pay attention to in our uh, part of the world. I don't quote from the Wall Street Journal in sermons very often, but I'm going to this morning. In the uh, recent Supreme Court decision about same-sex marriage, Justice Kennedy said the following. Well, this is part of the quote from the article, and his quote is inside of it. In 1990, this is from a man named William McGurn in the Wall Street Journal, June 19th, 29th. In 92, the occasion was a Supreme Court decision on abortion, into which Mr. Kennedy inserted a new definition of liberty, where Thomas Jefferson had grounded human liberty in self-evident truth. Mr. Kennedy holds that mere self suffices. He wrote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Think about that. The right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of human life. That's not only irreligious, it's ridiculous. It's irrational. It's bad philosophy. I think even without faith, I could construct an argument purely based on theories of evolution that it doesn't work that way. If everyone defines their own concept of existence, their own concept of liberty, you end up with chaos. (laughs) It's a concern. This has been, and it's funny to me, funny not as strange, Secular humanism, which is the philosophy behind this, adopted Darwinian evolution to support its desired view of human existence, even explicitly said so. They didn't adopt it because it was great science. They adopted it because they could use it as a tool. And I would think even from their own tool, you could argue that this statement about liberty and defining your own truth doesn't make any sense. Fortunately for us, Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. It will not stand. Now, there are consequences. A couple more lines from that article. The other half, besides this definition of liberty, involves anti-discrimination statutes and regulations, not to mention the discretion of federal, state, and even private bureaucracies regarding everything from funding and accreditation to tax exemption. In short, there is nothing live and let live about the way this movement has operated the past few years. And to pretend otherwise requires a willful blindness. As followers of the light, we are not to be blind. We need to be aware of this type of attack against the kingdom of God. Welcome to Justice Kennedy's world, 
We're upholding the Kennedy definition of liberty, the right to define your own truth, turns out to mean denying that same right to millions of Americans who define marriage and truth in a way different from his. So what is this? This is basically the sin of Adam and Eve. We will be like gods. We will decide what is good and what is evil. This is basically the rebellion of Satan. I will not serve. I want to be God. Well, we said David was a prophet. So what is God's response to this? It's in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Is that accurate? Yes. The Huxleys in the late 1800s, the founders of secular humanism, deliberately said they wanted to reject any higher moral authority, especially in sexual matters. And that's still pretty accurate today. The psalm goes on, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That's the way I felt. It's like God is saying, you've got to be kidding. That you can't possibly be serious. And yet we even find scientists today, physicists, talking about not discovering the truth, discovering how things really are, but creating the meaning of it all. When creation is God's activity. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, David's hill. I will tell of the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Again, clearly prophetic, clearly beyond David, clearly messianic. Ask of you and me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. little reminder that vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. We are not even to judge. Now, therefore, O kings, wise up. We translated a little there. <laughs> Be warned, O rulers of the earth. As disciples, we can say to the world where it is headed. That is part of our job to call them to repentance, as Jesus did. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we have a refuge, a rock, a strong fortress in Jesus Christ. So the bottom line is that Christ will come again. God kept his promises to David. He will keep his promises to us. And as Paul pointed out again in the second reading, we are brought into the same Abrahamic covenant and promises to David as the Jewish people had. God is building Messiah's house of living stones. And that's what we are. We are living stones in God's building. So, whose house is it? It's God's house. And God is bringing it to pass. And I heard a nice line yesterday from a speaker. 
Christ lives in us. And this man says, each morning when I get up, I say, all right, Christ, you live in me. What can you do through me today? What do you want from me to do in me and through me? Amen. Amen.